I'd invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 31. And I'm reading this very long passage from the Gospel of Luke for a specific purpose this morning. I want us to get a good, long look at this man riding into Jerusalem to see him, to truly see him. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 31, which is on page, page 1017 in your pew Bibles. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, 
A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas, that is 10 times three months wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. Let's pray one more time. Lord, may the people hang on your word once again, right now, in this time and this place. We exalt you, our master and king. Open our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. Be here, present among us. Help us to be expectant for what you will do as your word is preached this morning. As through the voice of a mere man, you bring your word to us. Amen. So as I said, I read that very long passage this morning for a specific purpose, to give us this good, long look at this man riding into Jerusalem. Jesus, surrounded by adoring crowds, waving their palm branches, throwing down their cloaks, shouting and singing. But remember where we started at the end of chapter 18, to where Jesus tells his closest friends and disciples he's about to make his final approach to Jerusalem, to where Jesus explains what is about to happen to him. I wanted to start there to make it clear that Jesus was under no illusions. He was popular, yes. He was adored by many, yes. But he knew he was also misunderstood by most of those people. He knew he was hated by others. So he told his disciples what he knew would happen. He'll be handed over. He'll be mocked, insulted, spit on, tortured, and killed. But he wasn't making this prediction based on his deep understanding of human nature, though, of course, he could have. No, Luke tells us he bases this prediction on the scriptures. Look back at chapter 18, verse 31. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled, he says. His friends did not understand. They couldn't. What kind of person says such things about himself, especially if his reasons are not born from cynicism? We might understand that a little better. 
but from a study of the sacred and ancient texts, everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled in me, he says. Jesus is saying he's going to his death because the Bible tells him so. But now look at this grand sweep into Jerusalem. It was already way back in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Since then, there has never been a hint that he was forced to go to Jerusalem at all. Jesus is never in any rush. He doesn't go to Jerusalem in a straight line, but he travels here and there and everywhere. He knows exactly what he's doing at every moment. He arrives in the holy city for the last time, precisely when and how he intends to arrive. Having just told us that everything the prophets wrote about him is about to be fulfilled, Luke says in chapter 18, verse 35, that on his final approach, Jesus stops in Jericho, of all places. Now, I'm not going to spend any time this morning considering why Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Joshua, would go to Jericho before fulfilling his destiny. I'll leave that for you to puzzle through and study. But consider for a minute what Luke tells us that he does in Jericho. Look at verse 38 and following. He delivers a man from his blindness. The man immediately begins following Jesus. Now look at chapter 19. He delivers Zacchaeus from slavery to his own greed. The crowd has been witnessing these things happen and marveling at them and listening to Jesus teaching about it. Jesus' absolute mastery of each situation has been so clear the blind man was yelling rudely, so rudely, that the people walking ahead of Jesus rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But the master took it all in stride. He was on the way to his doom, but the commotion didn't upset him in the least. He didn't hurry past him, absorbed in his own troubles. And he didn't just get this healing over with. Before he healed the man, he took the time to have a conversation with him. He was master of that moment. Zacchaeus thought he could slip up a tree, see who Jesus was, and quietly skulk away. But Jesus not only stopped right underneath his tree, he knew exactly who he was and just what he was up to. He called Zacchaeus by name and invited himself over to his house for dinner. He was master of his identity, of his heart and all of Zacchaeus' possessions. Now look at verse 11. Now I say Jesus mastered every situation he found himself in. He took everyone and everything in hand, including the will of the mob, and directed them according to his own will, as Luke now records for us. Knowing that they expected that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, the master tells them this kind of harsh parable. It was guaranteed to dampen their enthusiasm, just as it does for most of us when we read it. Yet this parable continued to demonstrate his mastery over them, even as it, its content illustrates his mastery over us, because Jesus is, of course, the master in this parable. It's not hard to see where we figure. We are either the subjects who hate the master or the servants who work for him. 
And all this, all this is the prelude to Palm Sunday, the grand sweep, the master stroke that Luke studiously traces for us. Now, you may find Jesus' parable disturbing or confusing or embarrassing. You might wish that Luke, like the other gospel writers, had left it out. But whatever you think of Jesus or his parable, there's no question that he was master of that situation. He was completely in charge. Whereas before, on his approach to Jericho, the self-appointed, self-important leaders of the mob were clearing the way for him, shouting at the poor beggars to pipe down. We see now in verse 28, immediately after he tells this little story, that Jesus, the master, now went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He left Jericho and the crowd behind, maybe a little stunned, and as Luke seems to be implying, utterly silent. And all this, this, this mastery, comes before he even sends his disciples on an errand to retrieve a donkey's colt that he somehow knows all about, knows even how the conversation with the donkey's owners will go. All this comes before an even greater crowd assembles to welcome the master to Jerusalem. All this comes before he, in perfect seriousness, claims the worship of the surrounding boulders of the pavement under his feet. All this comes before he weeps over the city that he foresees being destroyed. All this comes before he drives out all those profaning the temple and installs himself in it to preach. He is the master of the temple. Master of the city, master of the very mountain on which it is built. He is the master of the people, master of the palms, master of the cult, and of its owners. He is master, even of his own life. John's gospel captures this very well, so turn there now with me for a minute. I'm looking at chapter 10. That's on page 1040 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 10, starting in verse 17, page 1040. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life, he says. I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Just keep your Bibles open there for a minute. We're going to go on a little tangent. We can see how astonishing Jesus' mastery is when we contrast it with our usual state. Humans are embedded in their circumstances. You could even say that we're trapped prisoners of conditions that are mostly beyond our control. No matter how hard we try to be free, we're bound. We're bound by time. We're bound by space. We're bound by resources. We're bound by our relationships and our vocations. We're bound by our abilities. We're bound by our lack 
of ability. We're bound by our illnesses. We're bound by the things that excite us just as much as by the things that scare us. We're bound by our culture, and we're bound by our position within that culture. And of course, we're bound by sin, the sin of others and our own. We're bound by birth. We're bound by death. This reality isn't only articulated in the Bible. It's the greatest theme that lies underneath the work of every artist and philosopher. Take Shakespeare's anti-hero, Hamlet. He embodies this boundedness as well as any character in literature. If you don't know the story of Hamlet, very briefly, Hamlet is a prince whose father was murdered by his brother, that is, by Hamlet's uncle. But the uncle didn't only take his father and take his throne, he took Hamlet's mother as well, marrying his dead brother's wife less than two months after his murder. Hamlet finds out that his uncle is a murderer from the ghost of his dead father, who makes Hamlet swear revenge. Hamlet is stuck. But it's not weakness that immobilizes him. It's actually wisdom. He knows that things are not that simple, that killing his uncle won't bring his father back, won't endear him to his mother for sure, certainly won't foster peace and stability in the kingdom, won't actually solve anything other than to pacify his dead father's ghost and his own sense of outrage. Bearing the paralyzing burden of all that he knows and all that he feels, all that he's responsible for as a, as a son, as a prince, as a man, he makes this most puzzling of his many puzzling remarks. To be or not to be. That's the question. But whatever many modern interpreters of the play seem to think, the question is not whether it's better to go on existing or to end your own existence. He's not contemplating and never does contemplate taking his own life. The question, as he immediately expands on it, is whether it's better to leave things as they are and suffer in your situation, or to take action and to risk losing everything. Of course, losing everything for Hamlet could certainly include the loss of his own life. But he asks, isn't dying just going to sleep in a way? Aye, there's the rub, as he says. Death is not the end. Death is not a state of not being. On the other side of dying, as Hamlet sees, there is the distinct possibility that something is waiting for you that is far worse than whatever you're facing in this life. We know that Hamlet knows this. We know that Shakespeare knows this too because this is exactly what he's reasoning out. This is the whole point of Hamlet's speech. You can go back and read it for yourself. He may start by expressing an idle wish that he just simply wasn't, something that we all feel from time to time. But he very shortly works out that that just isn't possible. 
Once you're conceived in your mother's womb, whatever an atheist may tell you, you do not have the option of not being. You are you. You are bound to forever be you. You are stuck being you. Now, Hamlet displays a degree of wisdom in not immediately exacting vengeance on his uncle, but he generally doesn't handle his situation well because he's Hamlet. Really, he's us. Too clever for his own good. Gloomy when he should be gracious. Superficial when he should be serious. Cruel when he should be kind. Violent when he should be merely vigilant. Hamlet hurts everyone around him, everyone he loves most. And even though he does fulfill his awful destiny, he does so almost as an afterthought. Only once he realizes that he's dying. Hamlet is, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, a slave to his passions and pleasures. What's the point? That's how most humans are. Another wildly popular and more recent tragic English poet summed up the human condition very well this way. Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Strangely, that doesn't at all seem to describe Jesus. Although in taking on human flesh, he was just as bounded as everyone else, and maybe even more, because as the eternal son of the Father, he had an inkling of an unbounded existence before he was born as a man. Or did he? Look back at John 10, verses 17 to 18. John 10, 17 to 18, what we just read before my little tangent. The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. But now flip back a few pages to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This is page 1032 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. Here Jesus says something rather different. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Let's skip down to verse 24. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. 
For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. By myself, I can do nothing. I hope that a few things are clear from this passage. First, that the authority that Jesus speaks about in chapter 10, the authority he has to lay his own life down and to take it up, is not independent. Jesus' authority, Jesus' mastery, Jesus' agency, Jesus' power is all contingent on his complete submission. It all depends on total surrender to his heavenly Father. Second, his authority, his mastery does not stop with him. He has authority not only over his own life, but over yours and mine as well. Third, his authority over our lives does not end when our lives end. He has authority over us for all eternity. Those who hear his word and believe in him, he will raise up to eternal life. Those who do not, he will raise to eternal condemnation and death. Fourth, when we submit and surrender ourselves to Jesus' mastery, and only then, we begin to master life ourselves. Now, please turn with me to Psalm 40, the psalm that we've been studying for the past month. In our few Bibles, the final passage of the psalm begins on page 550, 550 in your pew Bibles. And as a word of encouragement, while you're turning there, we're more than halfway done. Page 550 in your pew Bibles, Psalm 40, starting in verse 13. Why don't we read the passage that we're focusing on today all together? Psalm 40, page 550 in your pew Bibles, starting in verse 13. Let's read together. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, The Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. Now, the first thing I hope you notice in reading that psalm is that at the end of the psalm, it seems like we're exactly where we began. That is, we start the psalm 
I waited for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. We start the psalm by waiting for the Lord, and we end the psalm. Where are we? Waiting for the Lord. Verse 13, come quickly, we pray. Our final cry in the whole psalm, oh my God, do not delay. So here we have again, in different words, the acknowledgement of our human condition, of our inability to break away from our circumstances. But is this repetition of waiting an expression of futility? That we should be frustrated that we have to keep waiting, keep asking him over and over for help? No. No, clearly not. It is just as Jesus expressed a celebration of our utter dependence on God at every moment. It's only in waiting on him that we can not only accept our circumstances, but that our circumstances, instead of holding us prisoner, form the framework of our praise. Let me say that again. It's only in waiting on him that our circumstances, instead of holding us prisoner, frame our praise. Only in waiting on the master of life in the midst of our circumstances will he shine through our circumstances. Only in waiting on him can our circumstances become, indeed, the launching pad for true life. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Look ahead, look again at the outer edges of our passage today, verse 13 and verse 17 the beginning of the end of those verses. In addition to the plea for God to come quickly, we have this expression of him as our deliverer and our help. Well, we've already spent a lot of time throughout this series and also today talking about who our deliverer is, Jesus, of course. Remember, he's the one who, as Mark said last week, became sin for us. He's the one who, as I said a couple of weeks ago, is the mysterious servant who sits up and says, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. But how does he, Jesus, come to do all that? Who is the agent who causes the master of life to inhabit the one who is surrendered to the Father? Who brings mastery of life to us? Who but the one Jesus calls the helper? Who but the Holy Spirit? We don't expect to find the Holy Spirit here in the Psalms, but he's all over the place, all the same. He's the one who breathed it all out. He's the one who breathed out the writings about Jesus in the ancient scrolls that the servant talks about. He is the one who bore the Son, our Deliverer, to earth who overshadowed the Virgin Mary. He is the one who unites us to Christ, who enables our waiting, who inspires our songs, who gives us our prayers. And that's just what we see in verses 14 through 16, a series of spirit-filled, spirit-led petitions designed to lift the psalmist, to lift us beyond our circumstances, to teach us through our ongoing troubles, to transcend them, and in so doing, to transform those around us. I want you to notice two things in verses 14 to 15. Two things. First, 
I want you to notice the intensifying nature of the three petitions we find there. And I want you to notice the simultaneous softening of the enemies the psalmist is praying for in the midst of their antagonism, their hostility toward him. First, let's deal with the intensifying petitions. The first prayer is for shame and confusion. The second petition, mere shame is not enough. The prayer is that disgrace would turn the enemy back, turn him around. And finally, in verse 15, there is the most intense prayer that the enemy's shame would appall them. That is, that they would be remorseful of what they have done. Shocked at what they were capable of. In other words, the first prayer is for the enemy to feel something, the second is for them to be moved, and the third is for them to be changed. At the same time as the prayers are building in power, something seems to be happening to the enemy. Look at the first prayer. There the enemy is the one who seeks to take the psalmist's very life. In the second prayer, the enemy merely desires his ruin. And in the third, that malicious desire has been reduced to a wordless sneer. Again, as the prayers intensify, the enemy is pacified. The objectives of the enemy are slowly transformed until finally in verse 17, something truly remarkable happens. And to see it, it's important to know this, that there is no adversative word at the beginning of verse 16 in the original. What I mean by that is there is no indication of contrast to the previous prayers. There is no, however, in other words, the word but has been added in the English version. So in terms of the people the psalmist is making petitions about, the progression goes like this, starting in verse 14. May all who seek to take my life goes to may all who desire my ruin, then to may those who say to may all who seek you to ultimately may those who love your salvation. Do you see what's happening to them? It's safe to assume that God has answered the prayers. At least some of those who began with the desire to kill God's people are indeed confounded, ashamed, turned back, ultimately shocked by their shameful desire that they seek the Lord. They seek the Lord, finding joy and gladness in him. They end by exalting his great name. Is it too hard to imagine that they've now abandoned their pride, joined the psalmist, joined the ranks of all God's worshiping people, joined with the lead worshiper, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit to confess along with us, the Lord be exalted. Yet, I am poor and needy. For that yet, that contrast, is indeed there in the original. The Lord is exalted. 
yet. We are poor and needy. May Adonai, the master, think of us. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Son is our deliverer. The Father, the one to whom we cry at every moment, do not delay. For only in this surrender, only in this trust, only in this state of weakness and waiting do we find the mastery that the master of life exemplified and offers to us. Only then can we, with him, embrace our human bounds and alongside him shine through our limitations, shine past them, shine brighter because of them. Life is no longer what happens to us, while we're busy making other plans. Life is what happens in us. Life is what happens through us while we're busy glorifying God, while we're mastered by the master of life. This is the true freedom to which we are called, the freedom of the glory of the children of God that the Bible tells us all of creation bound to corruption longs for. Do you love this salvation? I don't mean do you love the fact that you're saved. I mean, do you love the way of salvation that Jesus has made for you? Do you admire it? Do you marvel at it? Do you dream about it at night? Does your whole being vibrate and tremble with the excitement that you can be a part of God's redemption of the entire cosmos? Do you arrange your days in such a way that you seek to see this redemption lived out in your actions? Do you spend your days in prayer that he will reveal his salvation in those around you? Do you pray continually that the Lord will be exalted? Do you immerse yourself in his word? Do you live expecting that the Holy Spirit will work through you today, will display his salvation in you today? For that is the question, the chief question, the only question, the question that will determine your next hour, your next day, your whole existence, what you will do, how you will endure it. It's not to be or not to be. The false choice between merely suffering or taking some futile means to end it all. But to choose surrender, to be saved, to live in expectancy, always waiting for the Lord the master of the poor and needy, the master of the sinner, the master of all willing servants of donkeys and palms, the master of Zion, the holy mountain, the master of the redeemed of all creation, the master of life. Or not to be. That is, not not 
existing, that won't happen. What I mean is to be not saved. To be in perpetual and well-founded fear of what may come, either in the here and now or when you have shuffled off this mortal coil. To be outside of salvation, which will be far worse no matter what hell you find yourself in right now. To be in the perpetual and intensifying agony of bonds, of hatreds, of dilemmas, and of regrets. To ever be, as Paul says, a slave to passions and pleasures, passing your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Or, in the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior being saved by the Father's mercy, by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our deliverer, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be, to be saved. As Jesus says, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Even so, with us. Our Master continues, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it, to be to be saved, to begin to live life that matters this Palm Sunday morning. Let's pray. We are poor and needy. But you are exalted, O Lord, high and lifted up. Help us not to cling, O God, to our desires, our passions, our pleasures. Help us not to cling to our circumstances Help us not to be blinded by our circumstances, overwhelming though they may be. Lord, help us to see those circumstances as the launching pad of true life. May we see you in all your glory sweeping into Jerusalem. Sweep into Zion, Lord, your church, your gathering, your ecclesia. Cause us to strip down and throw our cloaks before you. And before you, humble, 
humbled and humbling, we may find true life, the strength to continue to be. In the name of the King, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Our benediction is found in Psalm 45, called A Love Song. And I feel led this morning that I'm just going to sit on that pew for a few minutes after the service. If anybody would like to come and ask for prayer or just talk about anything that I uh, preached about this morning, I'm there to, to talk to anybody who would like to. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the one who makes life worth living. And we exalt you. Go with us this day, we pray. And lift us on high as we are abased alongside you as we crucify our flesh with you, as we put to death our desires and you cause us to rise with new life. In your name we pray, King Jesus, amen.